Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Prom is one of the most memorable events when growing up. From dressing your best to gaining up enough courage to ask that special someone, it should be a night that's looked back on fondly. Unfortunately for some, prom night might just be their last night. Marin Sanchez was a 16-year-old girl with tremendous potential. A brilliant girl, Marin was an honor student at her high school in Connecticut, and she couldn't have been more excited to attend prom. She took photos in her prom dress and posted on Facebook exclaiming how excited she was for what should have been one of the best nights of her life. Marin was known as a bubbly, magnetic type of person who was very easy to get along with. One friend of hers was a 16-year-old boy named Christopher Plaskin. Christopher was known as being a bit weird, but friendly. He played football and was considered to be a class clown. Christopher, at some point, began thinking of Marin as more than a friend and decided that he was going to ask her to the prom. But as most people are, he was afraid she would turn him down. So he had a plan for that. One no one saw coming. On the day of prom, Christopher met with Marin in the stairwell and asked her to prom with him. Marin said no as she was already going with someone else. Christopher's dread of being rejected was then realized, so he did what he felt he had to do. He withdrew a blade and began slashing and stabbing Marin, cutting her neck. Marin, who was in fit shape, fought back as hard as she could, but it was to no avail. Her wounds claimed her life. Minutes later, covered in blood, Christopher freely admitted what he had done. Christopher's legal team will be pursuing an insanity defense as Christopher claimed that demons were the ones who urged him to kill Marin. A photo taken of a girl smiling in her dress, unaware of the fate that was soon to come. That's what Megan Poston's mother deals with often. Looking back on the photo of her daughter the night of prom in 2005, little did she know that Megan, along with three other friends, would be mercilessly gunned down that night. The four friends were all standing outside early in the morning after prom festivities were over. Out of the four friends, Megan attended prom with Michael Dillon. It was believed the other two hadn't attended. Megan and Michael were supposed to be at a lock-in inside of the school after the prom, but their names weren't on the registry list. So they left. A neighbor beside the home where the four teenagers stood outside of was awoken suddenly by gunshots. A 12-year-old girl in the home looked out her window and saw two bodies on the ground. Megan was still standing, pleading with the killers not to shoot her. More gunshots rang out, and Megan begged not to be killed. She was shot dead right after. All four teenagers died. Four crosses now remain outside where they spent their final moments alive. Though police had their suspects, the killer or killers have not been found. It's believed one woman named Bunny Holmes had ordered the murder over a drug dispute with one of the teenagers, and the others had been murdered to keep them from identifying the shooter. But Bunny denies having anything to do with it, and is currently serving a life sentence for the murder of another young woman in 2008. 
It is currently unknown as to whether or not Megan and Michael had anything to do with a drug deal that might have been in progress. The case remains open. A parent's rules are often good for their children, but that doesn't mean the children are going to like them. In 1989, Jeff Pelly was preparing not only for prom, but for a dinner before the prom and an outing the day afterwards. Jeff's father, Bob, a reverend, forbid his son from attending anything other than the prom, and some sources claim he wasn't even going to let Jeff attend the prom at all, as he had been in trouble for stealing. Bob was well known as a strict parent and wouldn't allow Jeff to even drive himself to the prom. If Jeff got to go, his father was going to be the one to drive him. Bob told friends that he even removed certain parts of the car so Jeff would be unable to drive it. Jeff was less than pleased by this, to say the least. Jeff had a bit of a rough relationship at home. His father Bob had been married to a woman named Dawn who had two daughters of her own. Jeff and Dawn didn't have much of a relationship beyond tolerating one another. There was a certain level of resentment in the home between the two families made one by marriage. Prom night came and Jeff's date was a bit shocked to find him waiting at her door ready to pick her up by himself. Jeff claimed his father had a change of heart, something his father wasn't at all known for after making a parental decision. He was a little late arriving, but other than that, the two went to prom together freely. The day after prom, the church was concerned when Jeff's family, especially his father, didn't show up for the sermon. This was highly uncharacteristic, so one of the elders of the church took a walk to Bob's house and found the door locked, curtains drawn. This wasn't how the minister normally kept his home, and the elder immediately began to get a sinking feeling. Unlocking the door, he stepped inside to find Bob dead on the floor of a gunshot wound. After calling police, he discovered Bob's wife and her two daughters, aged six and eight, dead at the foot of the basement stairs. They had all been shot with a shotgun. Bob had been shot twice. His stepdaughters had both been executed at close range. Jeff was obviously a prime suspect in the murders. It took around two decades before enough evidence was obtained and prosecutors felt comfortable enough to convict. From witnesses placing Jeff at the scene at the time of the murders to Bob's shotgun that went missing from the gun rack when it was on the rack just before the murders, a jury found Jeff guilty. He was sentenced to 160 years in prison, 40 years per victim. Jeff maintains his innocence to this day and is appealing his conviction. Tinder, do I really need to say any more? In July of 2015, 18-year-old Anna was browsing Tinder in hopes of meeting a nice guy when she came across 19-year-old Jake Powers' profile. The two exchanged pleasantries and numbers and soon they arranged to meet up at a house in Rancho Cucamonga, California around midnight. Anna thought Jake seemed like a decent guy, but the darkness of night can bring out the monster in people. Anna arrived at the residence where Jake suddenly turned violent. Forcing her into a headlock, he threw her to the ground and sexually assaulted her before fleeing the scene. Anna went to the police immediately, but tracing Jake on Tinder was impossible. His profile was gone. 
Not long after, a man attempted to rape a 16-year-old girl in her own neighborhood after she got off her school bus. She fought back and screamed, scaring the man off, but luckily, a neighbor's surveillance camera captured a picture of the attacker fleeing. Police shared the image on social media, hoping someone would recognize the man. However, they weren't expecting the attacker himself to walk into the police station to discuss his suspected involvement in the assaults. Police identified the teen as Jake Powers and found he was connected to both the attempted rape and to Anna's assault. Jake was charged with sexual assault, but police believe he has even more victims, possibly some he connected with on Tinder. And they urge any other possible victims to come forward so that full justice will be served. On June 5th, 2016, in Denver, Colorado, a woman swiped through potential dates on Tinder when she matched with 31-year-old Brett Sisman. The woman was wary of online interactions, so she exercised caution and spent several days chatting and speaking over the phone with Brett before planning the first date. She had no hesitation about meeting up for dinner and drinks after her first impression, but upon meeting him in person, her instincts told her she'd made an awful mistake. Almost immediately after finishing her first drink, the woman felt the room begin to spin. But this wasn't a light-hearted tipsiness. As she became more disoriented, she suspected Brett of spiking her drink. She told her date she felt sick, hoping to get away from him, but he took her back to his home so she could rest it off. The woman collapsed on the couch, the nausea and dizziness worsening with every passing minute. But Brett had little regard for his date's sickness. He threw the woman over his shoulder and carried her to his bedroom, where he demanded oral sex, and when the woman refused, he replied with, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Brett then sexually forced himself on her, pinning her down and biting her, despite pleas from the disoriented woman to stop. After the assault, the woman managed to escape her attacker, and the first thing she did was report the violent encounter to police. Brett was later arrested, but released after posting his $50,000 bail. However, he hasn't escaped justice yet, and if convicted, he may find that being a registered sex offender makes it much more difficult to find a date. When a 20-year-old student from the University of Kansas matched with 30-year-old Shane Allen on Tinder, nothing about him seemed out of the ordinary. He was friendly in conversation, and the two even had a decent first date. But when he picked her up from her sorority house on April 12, 2016, for their second date, things went far from according to plan. Shane drove the student to his trailer home in Lawrence, where the girl, Shane, and two of his friends smoked weed and enjoyed friendly conversation. As the night dragged on, Shane's friends left, and he and his date laid down to go to sleep. All of a sudden, Shane accused the woman of flirting with his friends, saying she reminded him of his ex-girlfriend. She hardly had time to deny the accusation before Shane punched her across the face and beat her into the floor. Injured and frightened for her life, the girl begged Shane to take her home, but he refused, saying she couldn't leave until the bruises healed. The next six days were hell. Shane forced her to respond to Facebook messages from concerned friends, telling them she was fine when she was far from it, enduring physical assault daily, everything from beatings to being choked. Afraid that disobeying would result in her death, she complied 
On April 18th, Shane finally took her home after she reassured him she wouldn't go to police, but she wouldn't have to. Upon walking into the sorority house, one of her sisters saw the extent of her injuries and immediately took her friend to the hospital. The girl was treated for two black eyes and had horrific bruising all over her body in addition to strangulation marks around her neck. Understanding the full extent of what happened took several days as the victim could only be interviewed for so long before her injuries forced her to rest. Shane Allen was arrested on April 22nd and faces five felony charges. If convicted on all counts, he could see up to 32 years behind bars. The world of online dating is fast and cutthroat, so when a woman on Tinder was matched with 27-year-old Darren Auger in June of 2015, the two quickly exchanged phone numbers and began communicating through text messages. Almost a week later, they met up for sushi in Denver's Cherry Creek neighborhood, where the pair seemed to hit it off at first. After dinner, they went for a casual stroll in Washington Park, chatting about work and their personal lives. They then returned to the woman's home. The woman told Darren she refused to have sex without a condom, but he wasn't about to let that thwart his advances. He continued to push things further, the woman telling him to stop, but the struggle eventually turned into full-on sexual assault. After, she screamed at Darren to get out of her house, saying, when someone says no, it means no. To which he responded, I've had a lot of girls say no, but they like it afterward. The woman reported the event and Darren was arrested on charges of sexual assault. However, he pled guilty in December of 2015 to a lesser charge, a misdemeanor that landed him in jail for only 30 days. As punishment, he has to register as a sex offender for the next decade and had to pay $1,260 in restitution, a small sum in comparison to the trauma the woman endured, leaving her with little consolation. Being a shy introvert can make it harder to land a lot of dates, but 30-year-old Gable Tosti had long outgrown his adolescent awkwardness by the time Tinder came around. He transformed himself into a self-described playboy and bragged about sleeping with over 100 women he'd met on the app, claiming the sexual conquest did wonders to boost his confidence and ego. To Gable, 26-year-old tourist Worriena Wright was just another notch in his bedpost, and he made it clear to her he was only looking for a hookup. She played along, and the pair met up on August 7, 2014 for drinks and a night of fun. CCTV cameras captured the pair's first meeting before they set off for a local bar. The couple later bought a six-pack and took the festivities back to Gable's apartment for a bit more privacy. Once they were inside Gable's room, he began recording their conversation, an odd habit he'd picked up after too many nights of being too intoxicated to remember anything. But he wouldn't need a recording to make this a night he would never forget. While in Gable's apartment, the two took selfies, which at first showed the couple having fun. But later, Worriena's mood clearly changed. An argument broke out between them, and Worriena began throwing decorative rocks at Gable while he accused her of being a crazy bitch. He screamed at her, saying she was lucky he didn't have her thrown off his balcony. Worriena went quiet, taking deep breaths to calm down. 
She apologized, but her voice suddenly became panicked as she screamed no repeatedly, begging Gable to just let her go home. But Gable locked her out of his apartment balcony instead. Upset and intoxicated three times over the legal limit, Oriana felt her only escape from Gable was to climb to the balcony below. Gable's downstairs neighbor glimpsed her feet dangling from the balcony before she fell, screaming as she plunged 14 stories to her death. The neighbor called police while Gable changed his clothes and exited his apartment. Grabbing a slice of pizza from a local Domino's, he phoned his lawyer, then his father. He told his father what happened and said, Why does this keep happening to me? I swear to God I didn't push her. Oh my God, I hope she's not dead. Gable was arrested on August 15, 2014 as a suspect in Warriana's death, though he insists he had nothing to do with her fall and says he never assaulted her. In October 2016, he was found not guilty of all charges. Warriana's family disagreed with the ruling, but they've asked for privacy as they try to remember their daughter for the intelligent, cheerful girl she was, rather than the tragic way her life came to an end. The internet makes it easy to buy just about anything, especially on Craigslist. You can find everything from a used computer to a house or maybe even your next date. But the site is notorious for facilitating crime, everything from scams to murder. Some of them sound too ludicrous to be real, but the question is, can you tell which are truth and which are tales? Looking for a change of pace, a man applies for a job listing on Craigslist. The gig offers $300 a week for house-sitting a secluded farm. After a few weeks, he gets a call from his two new employers telling him he's been hired. The three meet up to show the man his responsibilities, and they pile into a pickup truck, making their way down lonely country roads. But before they reach the farm, the two bosses stop the truck and say they've left some equipment in the woods and need help hauling it back. Eager to impress new employers, the man follows them into the forest. Suddenly, one of the bosses pulls out a gun and begins firing at the man. Instinct takes over, and the man takes off deeper into the forest, his attackers hot on his heels. The pursuit continues for hours, with the man crawling around on the forest floor, injured, hiding, and running for his life. He eventually comes to the edge of the trees and sees a house in the distance, helped so seemingly close, but so terribly far away. One man looking for a cheap desktop computer finds one on Craigslist with all the right specs for a steal at only $120. The seller says if he's going to pay the asking price, the man can pick it up tonight. So the man jots down the address and just before hanging up, the seller says, See you real soon, friend. Brushing it off as a quirk, the man drives to the property, but when he arrives, the house and the outside lights are dark. He knocks, but gets no reply, and tries the seller's number. No response there, either. Suddenly, two loud bangs shatter the silence from the backyard, the sound loud enough to scare the man back to his car. He tells himself he's being paranoid as he drives home, but the skepticism melts away when he sees a text message on his phone from a number he doesn't recognize that reads, See you real soon, 
friend. When he gets home, he tries to find the seller's number again, but the listing, along with the profile, have vanished. Wanting to get her son something special for his upcoming 18th birthday, a mother browses Craigslist looking for a car. A Toyota Camry catches her eye. It's in good condition and only $3,500. So she immediately calls the seller, a man named Bob, and the two set up a meeting time. But later, when she pulls up to the house, the Camry is nowhere in sight. There's no answer when she knocks, but she hears a cell phone ringing inside when she calls Bob's number. Peering into the darkened house, she sees a figure standing just beyond the window, only to realize she's come face to face with a posed, mummified human corpse. Horrified, she flees back to her car, but as she peels out of the driveway, she notices the front window blinds are parted. Someone inside has been watching, and even when she's out of sight, she can't quite shake off the feeling of paranoia. A young student looking to sell his graphing calculator puts an ad on Craigslist, not really expecting anyone to bite, but is surprised when he gets a response from an interested buyer. The two men meet up at a nearby shopping center, but when the buyer tries to test the calculator to be sure it works, he realizes it has no batteries. The student rides with the stranger in his pickup to a nearby grocery store where he purchases a pack of batteries. With the truck running, the stranger begins testing the calculator out, typing away at the keys. Without a word, he suddenly passes the calculator back to the student and pulls into traffic. That's when the student notices the stranger typed something on the screen. A message reading, you are kidnapped. Shocked, the student can only stare at the driver who speeds up, locks the doors, and begins laughing. But the man returns the student to the shopping center and hands him money for the calculator. He warns the student to be careful about who he meets from Craigslist before driving away without another word. Wanting to save all the money she can, a pregnant woman is excited to stumble across some cheap maternity clothes on a Craigslist ad. The woman contacts the poster, another woman, and they meet at the seller's house the following day. The stranger invites the expecting mother inside to look at the clothing, and sensing no threat, she enters the home where things turn suddenly violent. Without warning, the stranger smashes a lamp over the pregnant woman's head, scattering glass all over the floor. In the struggle, she slashes the mother's throat and tries to suffocate her, but the mother continues to fight against her attacker. Giving up on trying to kill the mother, the stranger takes a knife and goes for the unborn child instead. The attacker cuts the baby out of the mother's womb and swiftly vanishes with the child, leaving the mother to bleed out on the floor. But the woman refuses to die there and painstakingly crawls her way to a phone where she manages to dial 911 just before everything goes black. So now it's time for you to decide which of these stories were fiction and which were a horrifying reality. So what about our first story, the man being hunted down by his employers? While it reads like a creepypasta, this story is very true. The man did make it out alive and his employers turned out to be Richard Beasley and Brogan Rafferty, who had previously used Craigslist to lure three men into the woods 
before killing them. How about our second story? The man looking for a new computer only to be spooked by his new friend. If you guess this one was the work of fiction, you're probably right, as it comes from the infamous subreddit NoSleep. Though I wouldn't say this one is far out of the realm of possibility. So what about the mother who showed up to buy a car only to find a mummified human body? While it sounds just strange enough to be real, the details of this story change depending on which version you read. So it seems it's just a cautionary urban legend, and let's hope it stays that way. Now to the man who very narrowly avoids being kidnapped by a stranger looking to buy his calculator. There's no evidence to support this one, but one user in an Ask Reddit thread about Craigslist meetups gone wrong says this happened to her friend, and she insists it is entirely true. And finally, we have the gruesome assault on an expecting mother that leaves her childless. It resembles the plot of a gruesome horror movie, but this one is completely true. Michelle Wilkins was attacked by Dinell Lane after answering an ad on Craigslist and managed to survive the encounter, though her child did not. Dinell was sentenced to 100 years in prison for the assault and the murder. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.